the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, no longer from La Vuelta a España, sadly not from Wollongong in New South Wales either. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of today's episode of the Cycling Podcast as we look back at the first three days of the UCI World Championships in Australia and ahead to the rest of the week. And in particular, in this episode, the men's elite road race at the weekend. Now, I'm joined by a couple of exceptional guests Joining me today from Villefranche-sur-Mer, I think that's where he is, a modest Côte d'Azur fishing village, uh, yet also somehow the location of what is widely reputed to be the world's third most expensive home, the 750 million euro Villa Leopolda, whose value is exceeded only by the 27-storey Mumbai residence of India's richest man and Buckingham Palace. He is the current AG2R Citroën professional and veteran of one UCI World Championship. More on that in a minute. He's also a Tour de Suisse stage winner and 2017 US National Road Race champion. He's as refined as a golden hour cruise along the upper corniche in a drop-top Porsche 911. As American as cream soda, he is the man who put the vinagreta into our Vuelta a España ensalada. He's the Motown Marvel, Lucky Larry Warbass. How are you, Larry? Hey, Daniel. Yeah, doing well. Glad to be here. And actually kind of funny about that Villa Leopolda. I spent like an hour reading about that, like, uh, while I was kind of just uh, waiting to train the other day. So yeah, actually, it's funny. I I read all the same facts as you did. (laughs) Well, mysteriously and slightly suspiciously, I must say, Larry, I, well, the current owner of that villa is not, is not known or not widely known. I I think she died. I think it's disputed, but I think it's pretty, um, yeah, I think what they are quite sure is it was like this Brazilian Monogasque woman named Lily Safra and, uh, she died in like July. So, you know, I was like thinking about leaving a note in the mailbox and seeing if they just, you know, wanted to give me a steal on it or something. Yeah. What you're trying to communicate to the listeners is that it's not you. Um, Larry, I also mentioned (laughs) cream soda. Um, in the course of my other research this week, I discovered that cream soda was invented in your home state, Michigan. Um, oh. And the very first recipe for cream soda was written by someone named E.M. Sheldon in The Michigan Farmer, that famous publication, which I'm sure you still, still <laughs> subscribe to. Um, our second guest tonight, also joining us from Soya in Mallorca, long-serving Eurosport cycling commentator, the multilingual voice of cycling and owner of multiple voices, depending on whether he's commentating, podcasting, or singing the Italian national anthem with me on loop a cappella while drunk on grappa on a Tuesday night. Yes, that actually did happen. It's a man so fussy about his food, he once rejected my bruschetta on the basis that he didn't like the angle at which I'd sliced the tomatoes. It's my long-suffering former flatmate, Rob Hatch. How are you, Rob? How are you? I'm very, very well, thanks. <laughs> Awake, and I don't really know what time it is because I'm supposed to be in Australia, sort of... Uh, Time zone wise. So, yeah, it's morning, it's evening, it's afternoon. I don't know what time it is, but there you go. How has the commentary gone so far? Because you've been commentating on the races in Australia, haven't you? And particularly yeah. that adaptation to the time difference. I've had an interesting weekend because there was somebody missing this weekend. So, I actually was doing golf from California and then just a couple of hours later on a different day, actually, in a different time zone, I was doing the World Time Trail Championship. So, it's been, a, it's been an interesting weekend. It will continue in that vein, I'm sure. And Larry, um, just to come back to you and your one appearance at the US, um, sorry, the <laughs> World Championship. 
2012. We'll talk a bit about that later. But how come only one appearance? I was thinking, I was wondering what we could do to rectify this situation. I don't know, maybe Storm, the oh, Cam- yeah. Storm Capitol Hill donned in a horned fur headdress. Um, uh, they, they actually asked me if I wanted to go. Yeah, they asked me if I wanted to go this year, but uh, just with uh, coming back from injury and stuff, I didn't know if I'd be able to get ready in time, and I didn't really want to fly halfway around the world to do like 150k and get dropped or something. So, you know, um, maybe I would have been fine, but uh, you know, just like building back up from injury, I I thought it was like uh, not worth it to go. And then a lot of the last years, the U.S. hasn't done so well. internationally i guess like uh, in the ranking and stuff and so we've actually had like very few spots um the last number of years and uh yeah the year i was national champion um and would have gone automatically um i crashed and broke both my hands so so yeah um that is why i haven't gone for a while but but yeah uh, we'll see. Hopefully in the next few years I'll go. Um, so yeah, I, I would have liked to go this year, but I just didn't think it was, uh, you know, in anyone's best interest. Uh, I didn't want them to like, you know, spend a bunch of money to send me there and then not be up to par. So Well, that's been quite an issue, hasn't it? The cost of sending riders to Australia. We'll talk a bit about that later in the episode as well. But how's the training going generally, Larry? We know that you... Um, you suffered a broken pelvis in the, it was the Tour de Wallonie, wasn't it, at the end of July? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's actually going really well. Um, actually, the fitness came back quicker than I uh, expected. And, and yeah, things are going pretty well right now. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting back racing in a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, uh, everything is, is on the right track. So, so it's been a nice, nice uh, few weeks of training. Well, chaps, um, lots to talk about in relation to the World Championships and particularly the World Championship time trials that we're going to review or the men's time trial in particular. Um, Cycling podcast Femina will be back on the 30th of October and Rose and Orla and Lizzie, I think it will be, are going to review the women's action. We're going to focus on men today. But a few news headlines just before we get to the world's chat um, some transfer news this week or in the last couple of weeks since we, since we last spoke from the Vuelta España. Attila Valta, Jan Tratnik and Thomas um, Hatch, can you help me with the pronunciation? Is it Gloag, the Irish rider? They've all signed for Jumbo Visma. Gloag, Gloag. I'm waiting on that one. <laughs> Not going to commit just yet. Eek, eek. Um, in fact, I think that news is from a couple of weeks ago. But more recently, Tymon Aronsman, his signing for Ineos Grenadiers has been confirmed. He signed for two years, so he's going to be there until the end of 2024. We talked about that in the world and we speculated about that. And rumour, chaps, hot off the press in the last few hours, Adam Yates, possibly, probably, it seems going to UAE Team Emirates. That's an interesting one. Um I said that we would focus on the men's world road races today, but I thought it was worth mentioning that Audrey Cordon-Hagot has, well, she's talked about the, why she's not been at the world championship. She suffered a stroke last week, a minor hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic, is that the right word? Gonna have to help me again with some more pronunciation here, Rob. Um, a stroke last week before she was supposed to leave for the world and, well, we, Wish her a speedy recovery. Filippo Ganna, off colour in the World Time Trial Championship the other day, but he's going to take on the World Hour record that was recently conquered, taken by his Ineos Grenadiers, not really teammate, more colleague, um, a couple of weeks ago. Ganna is going to take it on on the 8th of October in Switzerland. 
That is if um, RCS Sports, the organisers of Il Lombardian, the Giro d'Italia, among other things, well, they've they've complained or they've suggested that it's it's not mutually beneficial to have it on the same day as Il Lombardia. And I, I believe they're trying to thrash that out at the moment. So there might yet be a, a date change for that. Other Giro-related news, um, the Giro d'Italia is now rumoured to finish in Rome next year and not Trieste. There was a lot of talk about it finishing in Trieste, way up in the north, the far northeast of Italy. But Rome have come in with, well, a bid, a request to have the race finished there. And um, that's also currently being thrashed out. Chaps, last bit of news from the week, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, is that... Um, the long-awaited Netflix series, uh, El Dia Menos Pensado, or the third series of the Movistar documentary, I think it was released about 10 days ago, but I finally binge-watched it a few days ago. And what a cracking watch it is. We gave the first two installments, um, Series 1 and Series 2, rave reviews. And Series 3, well, I think it knocks both out of the park. Hatch, you've seen, you've seen Series 3, haven't you? Larry, you have not. No, just the first two. So I, I didn't even know uh, it no. came out yet. So <laughs> what was Larry? What was what was your view, Larry? Just as a well, as a as a professional rider, and knowing that you know, who knows? Maybe you will one day be in a team that commandeers um, a documentary crew to do something similar in one of your team. How, how do you think the riders felt about it? How would you have felt about it? Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's a really good idea for the team. So, you know, I know there's probably a lot of guys that get annoyed by it, but um, I don't think I'd really mind uh, mind it that much because, you know, I know it's definitely like for the greater good of, of the team. And, you know, I think it's a good idea. So, like, you know, I think having Netflix around at the tour this year and the races leading up, you know, I, I mean, while might, maybe sometimes it's annoying, um, I think it's definitely for like the best of our sport. And I think it's going to do a lot for our sport. So, um so yeah i think it's a good idea uh i watched yeah the first two and yeah the first one i thought was pretty interesting and then maybe the second one i kind of got a little bored and uh yeah but maybe i'll watch the third one uh we'll see we'll see make sure you do because it's back with a bang isn't it it's back with a real bang the all of the fallout to miguel angel lopez and interesting you yeah. mentioned about creating characters and things as well there it's one of the key themes of the third series actually they talk about how it's changed how visible they are and there's a lot of focus, isn't there, on Chente Garcia Costa, who's become a bit of a, a cult hero with his with his phrases. <laughs> you know, they're shouting at the car every time he drives past you in the Vuelta, and he really loves it. He's enjoying it. He even gets to a stage where he's thinking about what sort of thing he can tweet next to turn into a phase for the next year. Um, it was brilliant. And, and obviously everything that happened with Miguel Ángel López was... Uh, you know, just just digging in behind that a story that probably wouldn't have been told otherwise. So it, it came out in Spain a few months ago, actually, here in Spain. And I know that the producers had to work really hard to do a deal with Netflix and to get it put up in English. But I am delighted that they have done because, as you said, Daniel, it is it's popcorn worthy. It's gold. Yeah. And I think I think if anyone had any fears that certain details or certain incidents or parts of the of what happened with Miguel Angel Lopez would be airbrushed or glossed over. So the, we're talking about the penultimate stage of the 2021 Vuelta Espana when he, he basically stormed out of the Vuelta um, in a bit of a fit of peak. And um, it's all there, isn't it? It's all laid out. All the protagonists get, um, they get their say. And yeah, it makes for riveting viewing. Just what you said there, Rob, 
it's really intriguing just speaking to people from Movistar. It's just a constant theme in conversations with them. Now, they, they bring up the documentary. I mean, there was a time a few months ago where they was, they, you could almost see their toes curling when you mentioned it and they didn't want to talk about it. But I think now they've finally kind of taken ownership of it and they've realised that um, it's been generally a force for, for good um, for them. And anyway, there's not a lot they can do about it now because it's all out there. And, um, well, and they can't retract it. But chaps, um, this is a World Championship episode, so it's about time we got on with World Championship chat. Now, during the Vuelta a España, we premiered uh, a deeply unpopular feature, the, the unpopular with the, the, the guest who was charged with taking care of it every day, unpopular with uh, quite a number of listeners. I got quite a lot of hate mail for it. But it is yeah. the stage summary time trial, the feature in which we... Well, try to tell the listeners what has happened um, at the Vuelta. It was on that day stage. Today, it's going to be what has happened in the World Championship so far in 90 mere seconds. Now, Rob Hatch, you've stepped forward. You've donned the skin suit and the time trial helmet and the super snood and whatever. Other Last bit. time I won a time trial, I beat you, actually, at the top of a mountain. I think it's about five years since that victory. That's though. false. That's false. I beat you last time at the in the Sakalobra time trial. <laughs> I was the last the time I won year. one was the year before that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, Rob, I'm going to give you 90 seconds. You've got to tell us what's happened at the World Championship so far. Can you Oof. do that for us? I'll try. Three, two, one, off you go. 34 kilometres of a World Championship time trial then. Two laps around Wollongong, New South Wales, Australia. Ellen van Dijk won her third World TT title. The Dutch woman getting the better of local favourite Grace Brown and reigning European champion from Switzerland, Marlon Reusser. History was made on the same day too as a rainbow jersey was awarded in the women's under-23 category for the very first time. It was Vittoria Guazzini who picked up Italy's first title of the championships. In the men's race, the USA's Magnus Sheffield crashed while looking like a contender to sit on the throne for a while. His trade teammate and British rider Ethan Hayton was fastest through Ethan Hayter rather was fastest through the early time check, but then he suffered a costly mechanical just before the halfway mark. He nevertheless came on a really credible fourth behind Bremco Evenepoel, who then took bronze. Norwegian champion Tobias Foss had set the best time and then watched on in disbelief as the checks came through. Two-time world champion Ghana was not at the races. Stefan Kung certainly was, but he was left heartbroken as he lost time on the final few kilometres, leaving Foster win by just three seconds and become the first ever Norwegian winner in the men's elite category. His first ever win outside of his own national championships. And there would be more Norwegian success 24 hours later. Søren Varenskjold took the men's under-23 title. Uh, do you know what? That was almost sickeningly good. That was that, that almost made me feel queasy. It was so good. I'm glad I beat you. I had in that to time. turn on the telephone voice for that. Uh, yeah, you certainly did. I'm glad I beat you in that Sakalobra time trial in the famous <laughs> Sakalobra uphill time trial in 2017. Now, um, Rob, as you so skillfully explained to us, there the well, the men's time trial was very significant. For a surprise result, a big upset, a huge upset. I don't think anyone really had the no. winner down in their list of favourites. He was, he is Tobias Foss. He's 25 years old. He's from Vingrom near Lillehammer. And he is the new world time trial champion. Here is what he said, having taken that gold medal on Sunday. 
It really feels like I'm uh, in some kind of dream. It's uh, I, I don't believe it, and, and it's so unreal. Um, yeah, I got the signals during the ride that my legs are really good, and uh, yeah, coming from Canada, I was confident my shape was good. But man, this is uh, <laughs> more than I can ever dream for. So it's uh, I will really try to enjoy it, but first I have to <laughs> I have to realize it. I think. Yeah, because when you were sitting on that hot seat, and after your performance, when you crossed the line, you knew you'd managed something huge? No, I, like, I wouldn't say I'm maybe the guy with the greatest uh, confidence, so uh, I, I really don't believe it until, until it's over, but uh, I really felt like I, I got out uh, everything I could today, and, and I did really my best, so, and, and I gave it, I couldn't do anything better, so... Then in the end, I have to be satisfied, and, and then the other guys have to do their race. But man, this is uh, unbelievable. Can you talk about your efforts? Uh, how did you pace yourself? I mean, it was flat out all the time. And was it a course that suited you? Yeah, I would say so. I think uh, there was no actually real uh, time to rest or, or to put down the power. Uh, but it's really it was really like an on and off course, uh, and you have to have to be really te- technical and, and push through the corners. So. Yeah, it was really all about using the terrain and, and going hard where, where the gradients are a bit steeper and then slacking up a bit and, and, and having a breath uh, where it goes faster. So yeah, I had really good coaching and we, we prepared really well. Uh, so uh, it was a perfect executed race. In just a few moments, you're going to wear the uh, <laughs> rainbow jerseys. You're going to wear that, jerseys for, that jersey for a year. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Stefan Kung. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean for you to have that Rainbow jersey. <laughs> yeah, like I said, uh, this, like if I were top ten today, I would be really, really satisfied, and um, and even top five I was hoping for. Uh, so to wear that jersey would be uh, would be really, really special, and um, yeah, I will try to honor it as, as as good as I can. But I will I will for sure enjoy it as much as uh, as much as possible. The cycling podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. This is Lionel here, and as you listen to this, I'm getting ready to head up to Scotland for the second part of our Tour de Cos ride, which is taking us to all of Scotland's football league grounds. We did the first nine stages back in April, and Simon Gill and I are heading up to Scotland to do the final six stages, starting on Thursday, and we'll be leaving Bonnie Rig, which is just south of Edinburgh, and heading up to Dingwall, which is north of Inverness. And we'll be visiting all of those football grounds on the way. And the whole series will be put together and released as part of Explore in November. Now, there's lots of cycling to do before we get to that point, And I'm hoping that the Super Sapiens system will give me the edge over Simon on the road. I've been reacquainting myself with how it works and I will be monitoring my blood glucose levels in real time to ensure that my energy levels don't dip below my performance zone. And I'm hoping that that gives me the edge over Simon, but we shall see. If you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. 
Now, before I hand back to Daniel and co for the rest of the episode, some very exciting news because finally our collaboration with MAP, the clothing company, has come to fruition and the dot jersey is available to buy at map.cc now. That's M-A-A-P dot C-C. Now, there's also some cycling podcast MAP socks, a casket, a water bottle, and I was very lucky to receive a parcel from MAP over the weekend containing my jersey, socks, cap, and bottle, as well as a pair of bib shorts that go very well with the jersey. And I have to say that the jersey itself is absolutely fantastic, even better in the flesh, so to speak, than the photographs suggest. And there is a very nice couple of nods to our friend Richard Moore on the jersey. The buffalo motif features on one of the arms, and there's a little inscription, so to speak, inside the jersey as well. And that feels very appropriate because way back at the start of the year, Uh, Richard and I worked with MAP and I remember the day when MAP sent through the email containing the three provisional designs for the Cycling Podcast jersey and we were absolutely blown away by how dynamic all three of them were. We each had our favourites and we knew that you out there, the listeners, would choose which one would go into production and it is obviously with a touch of sadness that Richard won't get to ride in the MAP jersey Um, but the motif featuring on the arm, it's a It's a very cycling style tribute, I think, that, isn't it? Akin to the Henri de Grange initials appearing on the Tour de France Maillot Jaune to see the buffalo motif on the sleeve. And I'm very glad, we're all very glad that MAPS designers were able to incorporate that in the final design. Anyway, if you want to see the jersey for yourself, go to map.cc. Oscar Freire, campeón del mundo. Oscar Freire, campeón del mundo, aquí no hay quien le pille. Estamos en la parte final de la carrera, los últimos metros para Oscar Freire. Y campeón del mundo, Oscar Freire. Well, uh, Oscar Freire, we don't know anything about him, but he knows how to ride a bike race. We do know he got the silver medal a couple of years ago in the under-23. That was his swan song as an amateur. Keeping the group together, making sure that they go down in one compact group to the finish line, because this is the chance for the big man. Freire. In fact, there's a, yeah, the Spanish That's rider Freire. Freire has gone down Freire. the outside. Did you see the line swing to the left? And they all follow Chan McRae, and Oscar Freire is shot to the right, and there's nobody reacted. This is how Medico says Celestino won the Hughes Classic this year in Hamburg. They didn't react in time and I think they've just handed a world title to a Spanish rider and that is going to be a turn-up for the Bucks. They're all going to say Oscar who, but he's taken it and he's taken it extremely well. This man, barely 23 years of age, is the champion of the world. Well, chaps, no, this is not the prelude to another extended interview with Oscar Freire about his passion for yogurts. Um, I'll point anyone who missed that to episode, I'm not sure which episode, it was of our welter coverage but it certainly featured um in that so look it up if you're curious but chaps the reason i thought it would be useful to hear a bit of commentary from the 1999 world road race championships and oscar Freire winning the first of his three world championships and well you could hear there the surprise in the spanish commentator's voice or what the mirth the the the, the laughter um, Spanish commentators couldn't believe that their second year professional Oscar Freire was winning the world championships and then you heard the great Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin who also well, were certainly very taken aback and that sentiment was shared by a lot of the riders who were competing against Freire 
that day. Uh, Jan Ulrich said he had no idea who Freire was. I, I can certainly remember it. I was sitting upstairs in my parents' house, and I was that was the early days of, in, of the internet, and this name came up, Oscar Freire Gomez. Everyone used his full name. And I can remember using, I don't know, Alta Vista or what were the other ones? Hot bot or something. One of, one of the. Ask, one of, did you ask Jeeves? Yeah, one of the. Yeah, one of those medieval search engines to try and find out more about um, this chap, and um, it was in vain because no one really knew anything. But it did. It struck me actually, looking back to that chaps. Um, you know, I went on pro cycling stats and I looked at what Freire had done in his first pro season. And I said this was his second pro season. And the pedigree was actually there for all to see. He'd won a couple of races already in his first season. And there wouldn't have been nowhere near the same degree of surprise um, had that happened today. However, that was a bit of a WTF moment in World Championships um, in 1999. And Foss's World Time Trial victory, um, I don't want to do him a disservice because he's another rider with great pedigree, won the Tour de l'Avenir finished top 10 in the Giro d'Italia last year. But I think everyone agrees that it was a huge surprise. Would you both share that sentiment? I mean, yeah, I would. I mean, like, I think it was a big surprise. Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll explain what I, I had actually just said to you guys was um, off the air was that, you know, the other week I actually was, I was running with Stephen Kreuswick and I, I asked him uh, what happened to Tobias Foss this year because last year he he was really impressive. You know, he was top 10 in the Giro. He had, he had really like a lot of strong rides and it was impressive. And then this year we didn't really see him at all. And uh, yeah, like a couple of days after I had said that, I saw he did a really, really good ride in Quebec. He He controlled the race for like two laps by himself. And then, uh, yeah, he went on to win the world championship. So, uh, I retracted my statement from, uh, the week before, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was surprised, but at the same time, um, it's not like there weren't sort of like inklings of that kind of possibility in the past. It's just, I think he hadn't really done a whole ton this year. And so I think that's why it was even more of a surprise. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I had a little bit of a holiday, as I told you all, during the welter. First race back for me was Quebec. And after seeing him doing so well at the, the Giro and talking to my good mate Sean Kelly a few times, he, he's a really big fan of Foss. He obviously saw something in him that, you know, real experts seeing people a couple of years ago. And, and he was shocked at, at how off the pace he was in, in the Giro. And, and coming back and doing that race in Quebec that, that you just talked about, Larry, I could not believe how good he was. He was absolutely incredible, preventing attacks in the last couple of laps. And all right, in the end, his teammate Walt Van Aert didn't win, but uh, the chaps who I commentating with at the time could barely believe that a rider with such a good pedigree was sort of in domestic mode. And we were thinking, well, is this what he is now? Is, is he becoming a sort of a, a, a rider who rides for other people? And I think we found out that maybe it was just a one-off. It wasn't the case. He was deluxe domestic that day because he was brilliant. And he turned up and I'm just looking at the notes I made for the time trial that I commented the other day. And, and I'm pretty sure that if I hadn't seen that race in Quebec, just to sort of highlight the point that you were making there, Larry, about, you know, what's happened to him. I don't think I'd have made too many notes next to his name. And the only note I did make, um, highlighting his name, that in all five time trials this season before the Worlds, he'd been in the top 10. Again, didn't have him as a big favourite, but I think it was that race in Quebec where a few people might have sat up and gone, oh, this guy's back. I mean, 
I saw him, further to what you said, Larry, about where had he been, um, I saw him at the Giro d'Italia just having an absolutely miserable time. And this often happens at, at Grand Tours, you know, when you're there for the whole three weeks and you're aware that rider's not doing particularly well, then you, you're almost studying their body language to see signs, outward signs of this kind of misery. I actually spoke to him one day. In fact, let's hear, let's hear a little bit of um, a conversation I had with Tobias Foss. I think it was in Modena or it was somewhere in central Italy. It was about halfway through the Giro and it was pretty clear things were not going well. And well, this is, this is what he said on precise that and, and how his Giro was not going as he and his team had expected and hoped. But, uh, but after my crash in Copia, I never really felt good actually. So uh, And also I got really fatigued on, on altitude and had to go home a bit earlier. But uh, yeah, uh, in the end it is like you said, and, uh, you, you always hope it, it will work out. And, and also like I said, uh, there's no right way to get in shape. So uh, there's so many ways that can work, so uh, of course you, you hope all, all the way until the last minute, but uh, in the end uh, it wasn't meant to be, but uh, yeah, we, uh, we finish this race now and then we try again. So that was Foss at the Giro Chaps, and, and I'd actually, well we'd got some intel and we talked about it on the podcast before the Giro, he'd, he'd gone into the season with very high hopes he was good in Algarve wasn't he and he had that crash with Sergio Higuita on the uphill finish um but then things decided to go go wrong for him we heard there he mentioned his crash at Copia Bartali but there was this issue that he'd had at the training camp before the Giro and they weren't able to complete the sessions with him and Tom Dumoulin was also having a bit of a rough time up there I think and Jumbo Visma went in with very sort of downgraded ambitions for both of those two guys but then after the Giro I'd sort of lost track of him again and I only learned subsequently and we'll hear from a Norwegian colleague later who explains a bit about this um, only discovered subsequently that he was supposed to do the Vuelta a España but um, I'd really had no idea what was going on with him I mean I'm curious Larry did Stephen Kreiswijk shed any light uh, about the well no no I mean no about what, what, what uh, had happened to him this year I think he said that maybe he struggled a bit with some weight issues and things like that, but uh, not really much other than that, you know. Um, so I'm not really sure. I can tell you that he likes to just on what you said there about his weight. He does like ice cream and particularly pistachio ice cream. Um, mm. Yeah, that, that, can't fault him for that. <laughs> that was, yeah. Um, also, in his youth, he spent many hours playing computer games um he said in one interview including euro truck simulator and farming <laughs> simulator um he's also a keen investor in the stock market um he likes tacos he loves nothing more than to eat tacos on a friday night apparently according to tobias foss a big norwegian tradition did you know about the tradition of eating tacos uh, in norway I on a friday it was like night? taco tuesday or taco thursday or maybe it's taco friday to be honest that would make sense then but yeah they do have like I don't know if it's taco. Yeah, maybe it's taco Friday. It's actually funny because um, I'm pretty good friends with another Norwegian, Vegard Stocklangen, who's on uh, UAE. And um, I, I used to be quite good friends with Evelyn Stevens when she was a pro. And one day um, we all rode together and she started to ask Vegard all these questions about Norway. And one of them was like, you know, yeah, so you guys have like taco Fridays or something like that, right? Like that's really big. Oh, oh so it's actually like, a thing. Yeah, I was like, oh, I was like putting my head in my hands, like, what are you doing? Like, Effie, like, like <laughs> you know, like, you're like embarrassing me. Like, this is the most American thing I've ever heard, you know, like, no, they're Norwegian. There's no way they have Taco Fridays, you know? 
And then in the end, she's like, he was like, yeah, yeah, definitely, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. And actually, like, when I've been to Norway a couple of times for a tour of Norway, I realized it's actually, like, it's one of the most, um, I don't know, kind of, like, Americanized. Sacrosanct traditions. Oh, right. Okay. Euro- European countries I've seen, so... Yeah. This feels like the kind of thing that everyone should know about Norway, but yeah, you know, like not. they have Seven Elevens everywhere, and like it's a great. I was going to say there's Seven Elevens all over the place, <laughs> yeah, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. I love Norway. Rob, you were commentating on the time trial the other day. I mean, what would you say about Foss's performance and just like just the execution of it? Um, I mean, it was obviously perfect. It was, it was, he bottled lightning. He, he got absolutely everything spot on, as well as obviously having great form. Yeah, he went off 12th from last. So at this point, even though he set the, the fastest time, who'd he beaten? He'd beaten people like Luke Plapper, who was in the hot, hot seat for quite a while, Affini, Yves uh, Lompart, who went fairly well. But there hadn't been huge names really before he went you had after him you had the likes of Biel, Cavagna, uh, Hater, Kung, Pogacar, Evenepoel, then Ganna so when he set that time even though it looked good we were still sort of at that point in the time where you think oh the big guys are coming out we're still sort of waiting for these times to be broken and when the only person who was seemingly getting near was Hater who then had the mechanical and then and then Kung as well as Evenepoel you did start to believe but you're thinking still thinking at this point well Evenepoel's going so well Kung it's got to be his year surely Kung was up at the last time check by the way and then there was that I think it was a 14, 15 second swing back in the direction over the last few kilometres of, of Foss. Um, it was still just not believing it until that final pedal stroke had happened. And as good as the ride was, you just still expected those big names to to better him. So, And you saw the images on the podium, didn't you, as well at the end? Even he struggled to believe. I think he knew he'd done a good ride, obviously, but even he struggled to believe what was happening to him. And there was that sort of air of disbelief just about everywhere. It was, it was fantastic drama, wasn't it? And you mentioned Stefan Kung there. Um, he has been dubbed in the last few days the the Poulidor of World Championships oh. or Championship Time Trials. I mean, he's on a yeah, he's on a he's on a very unfortunate run. He he's had numerous bronze and silver medals. He had well, he had even prior to the last couple of years, he had a bronze in bronze in the under twenty threes in Ponferrada in two thousand fourteen, silver in. Doha in team time trial, silver in Bergen team time trial, bronze in team time trial in Innsbruck, bronze in Yorkshire on the road, uh, 2020 bronze in the individual, and then silver in Munich in the Euros recently. And we should should add that he has won two Euros in the last, well, in 2020 and 2021, he won the Euros. But um, he said after the finish he could, well, he, there would be tears and they wouldn't be of joy. But you have to feel that it's going gonna, it's gonna to come right for him at one point. But this looked like the perfect opportunity, particularly with Filippo Ganna on an off day. Uh, Wout van Aert not there. Remco, you got to think, is maybe, although he talked about having done the best time trial of his life in terms of numbers, you got to think that maybe the Vuelta may have taken a little bit of edge off him. I mean, that's definitely possible. The other thing that I think, like, um, you know, we maybe failed to mention is, like, having less pressure, not being an outright favorite, maybe, like, you know, he goes in with a different mindset and he's a lot more relaxed than the other guys, you know, whereas the other guys, they're, like, really stressed because for them it's the biggest time trial of the year. And maybe having, like, a little bit of that underdog status going into this TT, he was just way more relaxed and could just focus on executing rather than 
dealing with all the like hubbub around it. And the other thing that I think like we also don't talk about that much is like, you know, this is in Australia and like it's a pretty big time difference, everything like that. And so like potentially he just also like dealt better with the time change and all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't know how the other guys prepared or, you know, how their lead into the race was, but, you know, that could also have like a huge effect. One more thing about execution as well, actually, just before I forget, there was something like 28 turns on each lap. So there weren't massive areas where the likes of Ghana and Kung could maybe, you know, settle into their pace, where you'd expect them maybe to, the, the you know, the pure specialists in the time trial to be a, that little bit of a percentage quicker than somebody like Tobias Foss, who is obviously a bit of a GC man who can time trial very, very well. He's obviously shown that he's a bit more than that in the last couple of days, but there was that to, to talk about. But then again, on the screen, we didn't see people like Ganna or Kung making obvious huge mistakes, but with all those little corners to turn, that might be something to to explain some performances. There, there could have been a few seconds lost here or there on on the many turns that had to be taken on. Larry, one thing I'm curious about, how come in these championship time trials, the time gaps are so small and we get so many riders? In this case, there were 20 riders within two minutes and one second of Tobias Foss over, and that's over 34 kilometers. I suppose 34 kilometers is not particularly long. That's short for a world, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I actually noticed the same thing myself. I don't think I have really good uh, idea of why that is because I, I was actually really surprised because I feel like, uh, you know, in a lot of like the World Tour time trials and stuff, you see like the winner, the first couple guys like put in a massive time gap. You know, like when when Ghana wins like a TT like normally, it's like he just crushes everyone. Um so I don't know, I kind of found that pretty interesting, actually, how homogenous the level was. Um, but, you know, I think it's also probably because especially a lot of these guys who went to Australia, like they're going because like they have a shot, you know, or they think they have a shot at least. And like, you know, I would say in a lot of other world championships that are easier to get to, like, uh, you know, a lot of guys just go because they're like, oh, well, it's the world championships. And like now, like this year, really question like, OK, like do I have a shot? Well, then if I have a shot, I'm going to go. And that's even doubly true for the TT because like, you know, you're not going to just jump in a TT halfway around the world just to like show the colors, you know? Um, so I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it, but I don't have like a, a really good reason. There might be something <laughs> in, in the fact that, the, sorry, Daniel, just quickly, there might be something in the fact that obviously in stage racing, if you look down at the sheets, there's actually not that many people who are, who are trying to win the stage because you, mm. you know, they've been told to rest. They've been told to have an easier day, just get around in the time limit. Even some people who might not be the big specialists going for this stage, but could be like you say in the top 10 or 20 not too far here on a lot of stage racing time trials that i think they're told to just lift their foot up a little bit aren't they yeah although i feel like every year now it's getting on the level so high that like pretty much people have you know like uh you almost have to go full because if you're not a good time trialist like if you're a sprinter and you don't really care about the tt just to like stay within minutes of ghana like you need to go almost full gas so the thing is is like you know, now the levels are so high in time trials, it's like almost hard to even rest. Um, but yeah. Chaps, just a couple of things before we get back to Tobias Foss. Um, Ethan Hayter, he had this mechanical um, pretty close to the finish. And well, he finished 40 seconds 
um, behind Tobias Foss. There was some talk that, well, I think he said it, it cost him 20 seconds. That still wouldn't have got him a medal, but I don't know. I'm inclined to think it maybe cost him a bit more than that. I think he blamed the Shimano shifters on, on his bike. I've heard, Larry, a lot of people having issues with the Shimano chains this year and um, there have been a lot of drop chains in races. I've heard murmurs that um, there's been an issue with them all year. Any any light you can shed yeah, on I that? Yeah, I mean, I heard the same. Like, we're not on Shimano, so I don't really so know. You can I say whatever you want. So you can completely yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. I also can't speak from experience <laughs> on that one, you know. Um, but, yeah, apparently, like, a lot of teams had a lot more issues with drop chains um, this year with Shimano than uh, they have in the past because I know in the past, like, Shimano worked pretty flawlessly. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if it was, some, it was like, something to do like with the new good, like, 12 speed. As I kiss goodbye to our Shimano sponsorship for the next three years. Yeah, anyway, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, apparently it was something to do with like the new 12 speed um, stuff, the group sets. And yeah, a lot of teams had issues with drop chains and everything. So, I, I think you could see in quite a few races this year, even in some important moments, uh, guys were dropping chains. So, I'm sure they're exceptional. That is less than I'm sure ideal. their exceptional engineers will fix those problems in short order uh, um, I actually would have confidence in that <laughs> yes. yeah yeah and just lastly Magnus Sheffield as well he had a, a horrific crash which I don't think was shown Rob was it on the it wasn't on the word feed uh, but it was picked up on social media yeah we which it was funny actually because obviously commentating we we only get the same pictures uh, as you guys all get watching at home or wherever you're watching. Uh, we don't have any extra cameras, any extra pictures, and none of us at the moment are down in Australia covering it on site. So the first we heard was, was when we saw these pictures flash up on, on social media and we're all looking at these videos and messages going through on WhatsApp groups. So we unfortunately didn't see it because we were expecting, I think, Magna Sheffield to possibly set the best time. He seemed to be the guy who was going to break Luke Plapp's uh, seat on the top of the podium, and, and he was looking really, really good. So I feel for him. The youngest guy in the race as well, 20 years, 152 days. Um, and there's never been an American winner in the men's elite time trial. So um, also, I, th- I really, also, really thought for Magnus Sheffield. Also a fluent Norwegian speaker, because his mum's Norwegian, and he wowed yeah. me last year by giving a, a perfectly fluent interview to our... Norwegian television colleagues and that takes us perfectly seamlessly on to well a conversation I had earlier today with Magnus Aura of Norwegian television Norwegian TV2 ordinarily he would be down in Australia for the world championships however um, Norwegian TV2 didn't send anyone down to Australia and well let's say they're regretting that decision now because all of a sudden they have the world elite time trial champion and the world under 23 time trial champion here's magnus order talking to me about tobias foss i think uh, we're all still blown away by what happened um we usually send a pretty big delegation of journalists to every world championships um but this year we thought uh not too many chances of medals for norway so we'll stay at home Kind of regretting that now. Um, so I think absolutely no one expected that. Uh, he said himself that a top five would be an ambitious goal beforehand. Um, his coach thought, okay, that's ambitious, but sure, go for it. And he won. He hasn't won a professional bike race. Like, <laughs> well, if you exclude Norwegian championships. So, um, yeah, a big, big shock to everyone, uh, himself included, um, his family included. Uh, his father did put a small dime I on I saw him, that. What, what's his mostly, father's name? Alf. <laughs> Is it Alf? Alpha? Alf, yeah, Alf. 
Tremendous. Uh, so I saw so he won. Really, you know, it, I saw he won five thousand krona. Is it five thousand krona? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Based on my experiences not, in Norway, that's about enough to buy. I don't know, a glass of mineral water and a breadstick. <laughs> Yeah, uh, something like that. So um, yeah, I think um, no no one expected it, and um, uh, and I mean, like you have to go back to yeah, you mentioned it. Like I remember Igor Astarloa in two thousand and three was a big surprise. Perhaps Mats Pedersen in twenty nineteen to a certain extent was a big surprise, but you could easily make a case for this being the most surprising senior elite world champion on the male side. Big surprise, like yeah, perhaps ever. Magnus, you and I earlier in the summer, well, when Foss was preparing for the Giro d'Italia, we spoke a bit about his preparation, how it was going, and it didn't. The Giro didn't go well. The, the start of his season didn't go well after the crash he had in Coppia Bartali, I think. Since then, we or I have not really seen much of him. I was I was curious that in his interviews afterwards he mentioned Montreal and the fact that well that had given him sort of good feedback and suggested that he was. He was feeling pretty good, but you wouldn't have known that because you know he finished forty something. wasn't I don't think he was particularly active in the race. So where where has he been? Did did you at least feel that, or did you at least hear that he was building some momentum? Uh, no, uh, you you mentioned the Canada races. To be fair, he did really well in the um, I think it was Quebec where we really pulled Andreas Lekinesun in the break back. He looked strong there, uh, but. You know, the, the thing is that he made the same sort of uh, mistake, so to speak, ahead of what should have been his wealth of participation, as he did with a, with, a, with a Giro. He got the altitude training beforehand wrong, had to not start in the Vuelta, which was a big shame for him because it was a big target of his. Um, so we were all kind of like expecting, ah, this is uh, a season to forget. And the, and the curious thing is, I, I don't think you can make a case for the big favourites not performing either. I think Stefan King did a good ride. Evenepoel had good data. Um, obviously, Walt van Aert wasn't there. But um, I think it just shows that like the talent he, he's always had, that we've been talking about in Norway for five, six years now, um, really was there. And, and on this day, he's, um, he's a top, top prospect. Man, I know him a little bit just from races the last couple of years. Very, very nice fellow. Good to talk to. Got a terrible golf swing. I've established that from his Instagram posts. <laughs> um, he's from Lillehammer or near Lillehammer, a place called Vingrom, is it? Yeah, Vingrom. Yeah, he's a former biathlete. I guess that, that applies to a lot of Norwegian riders. What else should we know about Tobias Foss? You should know that he's quite a well, quite a good piano player. Uh, doesn't oh, like to talk this. about it too much, we but he's, he's, he's quite good. He's a Domenico Pozzo Vivo um, light version. Um, you should know that he's probably the nicest guy in Norwegian cycling. I think everyone here uh, is really happy for him because you, you wouldn't find a nicer guy um, to become world champion. Uh, and the big story here for a few years was that he, he took a break from racing because he, um, he was quite open with struggling with um, the mental aspect of top sport. Um, when was that he break? Considered, he considered quitting. Uh, it was back in 2018. Okay. Uh, that was when he was at Uno X. Uh, yeah, he took, took an extended break from, from the whole peloton, uh, quite a few months, and then he came back. Uh, and we've always been kind of worried that he uh, would, yeah, get the same sort of issues again and reconsider career. But he seems to be much, uh, much better now. Um, but he was quite open about it, and it was quite a big thing in Norway because a lot of athletes don't really talk about that mental health aspect too much. Um, but uh, he came back and, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get to keep him in the sport for a, a few years more. 
even since he was 18, 19, he's been very vocal about wanting to to target the GCs. Uh, and he's been um, been compared to Tom Dumoulin and Chris Froome, you know, time trialists, uh, basically, who can also climb. So um, I don't think this will change anything. I am a bit worried, though, about the whole altitude uh, preparation thing going, not working out two times. Uh, so I hope they figure that out. And I think if any team has the... Um, the uh, structure to kind of help him with that. Uh, he should be fine. That's Yubo Visma. So, he also um, lives in Andorra. Fair, think, uh, um, he also lives in Andorra. Yeah, so, yeah. And a lot of the guys in Andorra, I mean, I don't know what the minimum altitude you can live at in Andorra is, but I think it's over a thousand meters wherever you are. Yeah, yeah. So he should be accustomed to it. So I think it was both both times a case of uh, just overdoing it, basically, um, and getting too eager, uh, training too hard uh, at altitude. And Magnus, there was another big success for the Norwegians today in the under-23 time trial. Søren, you can pronounce the surname for us. Wärenskjöld? Wärenskjöld. Wärenskjöld, completely wrong. Um, was that <laughs> as much of a surprise? I, I, I'm guessing not. No. You're guessing correctly. Second at the Europeans last year, fourth at the Worlds last year. Uh, brilliant form this time around. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's in his last year as an under-23 rider. That was as expected. And we might just take another medal uh, tonight in the in the junior men's race as well with a um, talented cross-country skier and cyclist, Jürgen Nordhagen. So um, been, it's been some crazy days for, for Norwegian cycling fans. And Lechner Sunday is going to win on Sunday, of course, so quadruple celebration yeah. incoming um just, just yeah you'll probably win that <laughs> just lastly Magnus, <laughs> just tell us what impact have these two gold medals had in the, the media in norway is it front page news headline news uh to, to be fair uh i think everyone it, it, like all the big newspapers and websites were were surprised so uh you could you can you could almost kind of feel the, the panic in the different media houses and so everyone was just kind of oh we almost forgot the whole world championships because we didn't know it was on it was in the middle of the night um so it's created a lot of headline news and also the the fact that the norwegian head selector head coach is He's at home in Norway because he got leukemia just before the World Championships. Uh-huh. So there's been a lot of stuff about that as well. And, Who is that? Um, I think that's uh, Hans Falk, who's been the national selector head coach for a number of years. Okay. Um, so he's in the hospital. Um, and he's very close with the athletes. And there's been a lot of um, uh, emotional stuff after the races where they kind of communicate a little bit. Um yeah, it's been big news in Norway. Uh, big news in Norway and very surprising news, uh, most of all. Uh, it was uh, one of the hardest races in calendar. It was, uh, yeah, you have to be in shape here. And uh, yeah, uh, after the tour, uh, I was not, uh, not in good shape. I was uh, relaxing and then uh, building up for this final season, final part. And today was a super good day, so I'm, uh, I'm really happy and confident for, uh, to go to World Championships. Well, chaps, in this part, we're going to look ahead to the road races. And there we heard a rider who will be one of the favourites for the rainbow jersey on Sunday, Tadej Pogacar, talking after his victory in the GP Montréal or Montreal. And when was that? That was about a week ago now. Um, I thought it'd be, it would be instructive to listen to Pogacar just talking about how good his form is. And when we go on 
later to think about favourites for Sunday's race. But also, in part two, when we described, or I described, Tobias Foss winning the World Time Trial Championship as a bit of a WTF moment. I was thinking about other WTF moments in professional cycling. Do you know what was a bit of a WTF moment for me? Realising that Montreal has 4,500 metres of climbing in that race. To be honest, it's a race I've never paid that much attention to, and I could not believe how difficult the profile is when I started examining the route in greater detail. Larry, have you done that? Have you done Montreal in the past? Uh, no, I actually haven't. I, I was supposed to go like uh, maybe last year or something and then, you know, got cancelled again. So, so yeah, no, I've missed it. Actually, no, I've heard it's an awesome race. So I would like to go sometime in the next few years. A few other WTF moments in recent cycling or recent and not that recent cycling history, chaps. Oscar Ferrer, to my mind, is the greatest, certainly related to the World Championships. Um, you, we've got to be careful here not, not to lurch into the territory of suspicious performances, but um, uh, Jamaluddin Abdul Japarov winning a mountain stage in the 1996 Tour de France, that was a bit of a WTF. Um, hmm. Abdul Japarov, a big burly sprinter, of course. Um, Alexander Folifarov winning Alpe di Siusi in the 2016 Giro, less said about yeah, that, the yeah. better. And Lance Armstrong, the controversial Lance Armstrong announcing his come back to cycling in 2008 not many people saw that coming there was a there were a few murmurs before that um pog beating rog to the 2020 tour de france um at the planche de belfi i think most people would agree with that uh futon Savetto's kit unveiling in 2010 you remember that the sort of <laughs> The, the, well, how would you describe like their kit? It was kind of skin tone, wasn't cheap it? Cheap gold. Yeah, cheap gold with a big footprint on it. That was, um, yeah. That certainly left a, a few people open mouth. Um, yeah, there have been a few over the years. Any, any that come to your mind? Chaps, I'm putting you on the spot here. Mm-hmm. World, world Championship. Well, just looking at World Championship time trials. I mean, it's rare to get a surprise in a World Championship time trial, but... Kirienko in 2015, that, I think that was a little bit of an upset. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Bert Grabsch in 2000. I was going to say Bert Grabsch, yeah. Yeah, in 2008. Yeah. That's a oh, name that a lot of people would have forgotten, but he was very good in time trials around that period. So not as big of a, a surprise as Foss, I don't think. Chaps, um, it's time to talk about the road race on Sunday, the men's road race. And we're going to start by talking about the riders who won't be at the World Championships on Sunday for various reasons, a whole lit- litany of reasons for riders not being, um, either not being selected or not wanting to be selected, not going. So here are a few. Well, Movistar en masse didn't want their riders going because of the relegation battle that they were engaged in. They accumulated a lot of points at the Vuelta España, so a lot of those fears have been allayed. But um, Carlos Verona, did you notice that he won a gravel race at the weekend? Was it the Rancho gravel race near Madrid? But he's not at the Worlds. Um, Cofidis, same reason. Again, relegation fears. They didn't want to make Brian Cocard available to the French team. Um, the Spanish team boss, Pascual Montparler, said that only two of the eight riders he had in mind were available. Um, again, for wow. assorted reasons, um, many of them Movistar riders. Uh, Lotto Sudal uh, didn't want Victor Campanats or Arno Delis to go. Again, r- yeah, none of their Belgian riders they wanted to go, apparently. Right, right. Um, why the Belgian riders in particular, Rob? I think just because they probably have more control over that. Um, obviously, they're trying to save their world to a status and, and failing quite 
quite miserably at that at the minute. And, and I think that they have more control over the Belgian squad just because they're a Belgian team and the fact that um, Belgium have quite a strong squad to take anyway. Indeed. Uh, Mads Pedersen, 2019 world champion. He, he has cited family reasons. He said he'd done 80 race days already this year and he wants to spend time with his wife and his daughter. Um, also in the Danish team, Jonas Vingegaard. He withdrew months ago, I think, and the Danish selector was pretty unhappy about that or unhappy about the fact that Vingegaard had given him no sort of formal explanation. I don't know whether he was supposed to, I don't know, send a, send a letter on... On, on some kind of headed paper, perhaps a scroll for some description, but no, no, no explanation from Vingegaard. Um, Benoit Cosnefroy initially said he wanted to focus on the end of the season with his trade team, AG2R Citroën. This is your teammate, Larry. However, stop press. Yeah. We've heard in the last few hours that Cosnefroy is on his way to Australia. So a change of heart there um, on someone's part. <laughs> We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Rowan Dennis, family reasons. Uh, he didn't take part in the time trial the other day because his brother was getting married. The Canadian Federation said that their riders would have to pay their own way. Consequently, Michael Woods, Hugo Hula, Guillaume Boivin and Antoine Duchesne didn't go. New Zealand are only sending one rider. Ireland not sending anyone. Again, there are financial reasons for those, um, the two aforementioned decisions or policies. Lawson Craddock didn't get his visa on time uh, for the time trial the other day, which I'm surprised about because he spent several days at the Vuelta Espana in coming into the mix zone every morning and talking to some of our Australian colleagues there and making sure that all of his all of the T's were crossed and the I's dotted for his visa application. It was a constant subject of conversation, but it didn't get done on time. Um, Caleb Ewan was not, was not picked. Um, he was apparently heartbroken. The national selector, Rory Sutherland, said, well, Ewan hadn't won a race for four months. Oof. Dylan Turns, disappointed not to be picked for the Belgian team. David Gordou didn't want to go. He's focusing on um, Lombardia. Juan Ayuso and Sugarman Rodriguez, both stars of the Vuelta España. They, well, Rodriguez finished injured, didn't he? He finished beaten up the Vuelta. Ayuso sort of said that he wasn't in a fit state to represent Spain. Uh, Vlasov, Alexander Vlasov and the Russian, other Russians and Belarusians, of course, are banned. Uh, Vincenzo Nibali, He's focusing on Lombardia, which will be the last race of his career. And uh, he sort of suggested that he and the Italian national selector, Daniele Bernati, had agreed that he shouldn't go. And then Diego Lisi was withdrawn by UAE from the Italian team, from contention for the Italian team, because they want to focus on the end of season race as well, even though they're not threatened by relegation. So, chaps, there's a lot to digest there. There's a lot to digest. I'm going to start with, the, I suppose, the one that caused most debate and discussion at the Vuelta Espana those riders like Mads Pedersen who have simply said not for me because it's a long journey it's been a long season and hence I'll sit this one out Larry thoughts I mean I think that's totally fair I think uh he probably made that call before he saw how well he was going at the Vuelta um so maybe he you know thought twice about it after after he he uh, decided that. But I mean, you know, I think the thing is, is like, yeah, it is a super long year. And, you know, to keep going, you know, I don't know what his season looks like or if he stopped after the wild or not. But like, 
you know, to keep going and stay super motivated after the Vuelta to the Worlds, even though it's only a couple of weeks, like that's a long couple of weeks when you've been going since the beginning of February, like he has. So, um, you know, I get that. And, and I think uh, it's just also like people think about that journey and, you know, you kind of lose a week each way in terms of jet lag, travel, everything like that. And so I think, um, you know, guys are really, you know, thinking about that when, um, they decide whether, you know, to go or not to the world championships. And yeah, I mean, it's different for like, a, you know, maybe for some of these guys, like, uh, they aren't also, you know, promised sole leadership of the team. And maybe for them, it's not worth it to go if they're not going to be the sole leader, um, of their national team. So, uh, you know, I think there's quite a lot of different things that go into it. Um, but yeah, I can understand like most of, uh, the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I think it's easy to see it as an oversimplified debate. I mean, I can understand on the face of it, people say, hang on, what's he doing? This this course is made for Mas Bitherson or, or somebody else. He's talking about a 266-kilometre route, just under 4,000 metres of climbing I, and, yeah. and in the sort of welter form. I don't, I'm not um, sure. You know, it's a, it's, it's a good route for him, maybe. But, but... Um, as Larry just said, there's a lot of a lot of variables that go into it. I mean, the argument I don't buy is is people moaning about the distance. I understand it's not great, but I mean, who are we to say, let's say, you know, sitting here in Europe, that that, that they shouldn't be in a different country? Surely, everybody in every country deserves a right to to host the World Championships, to have the sport near them. I understand it's not easy. Maybe think about if you're going to have it in Australia, change the date or something like that. But, but, but. Just using the distance isn't isn't an excuse, but we are coming off uh, a couple of obviously ridiculously testing years in the world for for reasons we all know. Of. So I can completely understand that people have the right to say I want to be with my family and things like that. But but there are yeah there's a, there's a lot of variables to go in there, and it's difficult to understand. I think on the face of it, if you're just um, a fan who watches on at home, but but there's plenty of variables behind the scenes that, that I'm sure that going to influence things and people don't just take these decisions on a whim yeah i mean it's kind of funny that just that you say about the distance because like a hundred percent for me if it was in belgium or spain or italy like i would have said yes to go you know but mm. like uh the distance i think really takes a lot out because like if there are other races you want to focus on too um you know it kind of ends your season in terms of like uh with the travel and the jet lag and you don't have that much time after before like in between the yeah, worlds that, and but the that's other where races. the UCI that's where the UCI or someone has to step in and help you out and say right well, let's change the date slightly this year i can yeah. completely understand that there's a there's a conflict there that's why i said it you know it's not it's not cut and dry and it's very easy for us to say um you know i don't understand this and be outraged at it uh, my argument my argument is that i just i just think that everywhere does deserve to to have the world championships and it can't be yeah. an exclusively european things but completely on your side there about yes it might involve your changes of plans for things and at the end of the season or logistically it obviously is a nightmare for people who are based in europe there's, there's no getting around that is there but um i think maybe that yeah the uci should help out with dates but again getting the uci to help out with many things is not always an easy task is it <laughs> i mean is this a good example of the friction between and maybe the fundamental incompatibility of a, an event ridden raced in nation national teams in a sports where that is not the status quo um you know you think about someone like Maz Pedersen well 
the prospect and the potential rewards that a team would accrue from having a rainbow jersey versus, I don't know, the record, rewards that a national federation would accrue from having one of their athletes in a in a rainbow jersey. I mean, that's also something that's conjured with. Mads Pedersen's got a long-term contract with Trek Segafredo, so I guess, you know, there's, there's obviously a, a mutual understanding there and a good working relationship. But I could Im- can imagine another scenario where a team, a trade team would say, look, I'd you know, okay, you've done 80 days this year, you want to see your family, but you're going, son, because um, the possibility <laughs> of winning a rainbow jersey is simply too valuable for us. I mean, Trek don't have a lot of other potential world champions. Jasper Sturven could surprise us. And I actually would take, I would take issue slightly with, the Rob, what you said about the course suiting him. I don't know. I mean, I've seen uh, the, the, the Oracle as far as courses, um are concerned is VeloViewer. That's the resource that most of the teams use, most of the riders mm. use. And <laughs> um, they have the course down as 4,200 metres of climbing, which is a lot. And um, we'll come on to talk a bit more about the course later. But, you know, that's up there with, well, it's more than an Amstel Gold. It's sort of the same ballpark as a, as a Lombardia. Um, I think it might be a little bit too difficult for Mads Pedersen, in which case, you know, maybe he's not really... He in Denmark and Trek Segafredo are not really sacrificing too much by him not not going they're also one of the nations that has a fantastic pool to pick from as well aren't they so i think it it is different for everybody else uh, for for every nation i i suggest chaps um just before we talk about your own experiences with the world particularly yours larry um i mentioned ulisi and the italians um the italians are in a bit of a froth about various things they always are when it comes to the world nowhere no other country takes the world as seriously as the Italians and Rob you probably followed this Larry are you aware of the unveiling of the team at, at this um, beach <laughs> beach well it's called jo- have you ever heard of the Italian artist Giovanotti He's, I have. Yes. I'm not a big fan. No, I'm not a big fan either, really, of his music. Anyway, Giovanotti, very, very famous Italian pop star, sort of sometime rapper. You could even call him rock star. And last couple of summers, I think, he's had something called, he's um, been the protagonist of something called Jova's, Jova's Beach Party. And this is a concert tour with originally a purportedly sort of ecological, environmentally friendly ethos. They were going to beaches and in some cases, I think, even... Um, very sort of explicitly recovering or contributing to a decayed environments. However, um, it's been pointed out that they, they're actually causing quite a lot of damage to these environments. And, and it's all got very ugly. Giovanotti on social media has been calling these the, the sort of campaigners or people who are pointing out what he's doing wrong, eco-Nazis. And it's got very, very ugly. However, Giovanotti is also a good friend and fellow training partner at times of Daniele Benati, who's now the Italian national team selector. Daniele Benati decided that it would be a great idea to unveil the Italian national team certainly the long list for the Italian national team at the Ajova beach party. I think it was the last day of this summer's tour. And needless to say, the Italian cycling establishment is up in arms about this. They've got their Bermuda shorts in a right twist about this. And it can, it's contributing to just a generally febrile atmosphere around the Italian national team this year. There was another... Um, there was an article online a few days ago on a big website, the headline of which was the worst Italian cycling team or world championship team of all time. And again, this caused a lot of hand wringing. I mean, it's all very entertaining to watch if you're, 
you know, if you're viewing from the public gallery, but um, at least, as I say, the Italians remind us every year that the world is a big deal, and they certainly find reasons to talk about it for several months after the event. But it'll be interesting to see how they do with Alberto Bettio. He He's a rider who, when he runs hot, he runs very, very hot indeed, and he can be competitive on pretty much any kind of course, can't he? Yeah. Larry, we mentioned at the start of the show your, unfortunately, un, un, unjustly sole performance <laughs> in the World Championships in 2012 in Valkenburg, I guess that was, wasn't it? You were an under-23 at the time. How, I was. How proud were you, how proud were your family um, that you were able to pull on the stars and stripes? Uh, I mean, you know, at the time, like I was on the under 23 national team. So pretty much every race we did was in the stars and stripes. But, uh, oh. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely cool to do the world championships. Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I thought it was a nice experience. Um, but yeah, you know, it's one of those things. I think it's like, it's always comes at the end of the season. So a lot of guys are pretty tired and, you know, kind of at the end of the, their I don't know energy or whatever um for the season and so I think it's kind of this mixed it's like a mixed bag of motivation um of guys and so you know it's like I think everyone wants to go because it's a cool event you're representing your country um but yeah you know some guys are are tired from the whole season and so you know it's like you definitely see a mix of uh um, I guess performances from people there, and and so yeah, it was it was a nice experience for me to go, and I'd definitely like to go again. I you know I would have liked to go in 2017 when I was national champion, um, but yeah, I crashed uh, in the Vuelta shortly before, so I couldn't. And uh, yeah, um, I think you know if I was in better shape, I would have really liked to go this year. But uh, but yeah, uh, you know I guess <laughs> things happened. I crashed, and uh, yeah, it didn't work out. So. Hopefully I'll get another chance uh, in the next couple of years. But, you know, I think it's, it's always something special, uh, yeah, to pull on, you know, your national team's jersey and, and to race for your country. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely um, it's, it's different because, you know, you race with your trade team and your teammates the whole year. And then, like, all of a sudden one race a year, you know, you change and you race for someone else. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a different uh, sort of thing than, than every other race. Larry, I said I was going to ask you earlier and f- clean forgot. Your f- friend, teammate, Benoit Cosnefroy, this vault fast, this decision, apparently, reportedly, to finally go to the World Championships when he wasn't due to, um, we believe this has something to do with Bruno Almirail pulling out of the French road race team. But Cosnefroy, having won in Quebec, he's obviously got great form. He is a rider, I would, I would argue, who definitely suits this route. I mean, what can you tell us, Larry? I mean, yeah, so that was also a surprise to me. You know, I remember earlier this season, he was like, you know, kind of going back and forth on, you know, whether, you know, he wanted to sort of put his hand in um, for the selection or not. Um, you know, because I think, again, yeah, it's such a big uh, journey to get there. And, and, you know, it kind of ends your season a bit um, in terms of like the races after. And so, um, you know, I think probably for a while he was like, okay, well, you know, I was a part of like Alaphilippe's win last year and that was really cool. But like, you know, if I'm not going to have a chance to sort of like um, go for my own result, like I don't know if it's worth the journey when when I could perform at like races in Europe and big prestigious races uh, with the team. So I think that was kind of why he wasn't going for 
a while. Um, and then I think probably after um, Quebec, he probably, you know, had second thoughts. And I'm sure like the national team had second thoughts as well. And um, so I think, you know, probably it goes along with Philippe's crash. You know, I don't think they're so sure uh, on his fitness. I mean, he, he could you know, perform awesome and win the world champs again, or, or he could, uh, you know, not have the best day. So, you know, maybe Benoit's going sort of as like a backup um, for him. And uh, I think it's kind of like a nice way to slot into the team. And uh, yeah, I think he, he could have a really good shot at winning, which would be pretty cool. I mean, that's sort of why I'm surprised he wasn't going anyway, because of Alaphilippe, all the data around Alaphilippe. When when he was so good in Quebec, I automatically assumed really that he'd be on the plane with the rest of the team directly from Quebec to Australia instead of coming back to Europe first. I mean, Larry, you told us during the World Tour how generous he is with his gifts when (laughs) and if he does win races. I mean, there'll be yachts and helicopters and (laughs) speedboats and all sorts raining down if he does take the rainbow jersey i'd also very much look forward to his victory celebration we saw him do that memorable dance um when it was was it last year after it was last year yeah you can you can find that online pretty easily the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast and thank you to them for fueling our ride in Scotland. This is a very Tour de Cost themed episode of the cycling podcast, isn't it? Which is fantastic because all of our major partners are contributing in one way or another and we're very grateful to them for that. We've stocked up on Science in Sport products for the week. I've gone particularly big on the beta fuel because back in April, I found that a really effective way to fuel efficiently for our ride. Basically fueling and keeping hydrated without really thinking about it because the powder mixes up into a drink and you're consuming carbohydrate all of the time as well as keeping hydrated. And you can keep the energy levels up without feeling like you have to cram in a huge quantity of food. And that when you're riding a reasonable distance means that you always feel comfortable on the bike it was a bit of a revelation to me the beta fuel and uh, i will be relying on that again over the six days of our ride if you want to get 25 percent off everything at scienceinsport.com you can do so with the discount code siscp25 now it's back to daniel remember if you do want to follow our progress you can watch the dot at thecyclingpodcast.com we roll out from bonnie rig on thursday so, chaps, once again, running with the template we've created at the Vuelta. In this final part, we're going to talk about what's coming at the world. Um, at the Vuelta, we preface this section with a mention of last night's dinner. We won't do that here, although I was quite tickled by a quote I saw from Remco Avenepoel the other day, namely that he was afraid of Australian pies. <laughs> Rob Hatch, I think you, I think you, I think you bowled a few pies in your I'm time. But are you afraid of them? In. My mortal enemy. Um, I'm not a pie man, as you well know. What, what's the deal with know. Australian I, I, pies? I just what thought is, it was a, a Australia? normal pie. This is always like, Lancashire intrigued pie, me. Know. Thought it was the same sort of stuff. Thought a pie was a pie. Why are they such a thing? It doesn't seem. It doesn't seem very congruent with the Australian Australian climate. It doesn't seem like True. the kind of thing <laughs> that you would want to eat. Having said that, no, 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 um, New South Wales. They've had. I mean, the guys were out training in sort of snuds this week and before the time trial, I think it was something like 12 degrees. So they've had a bit of a bad winter down there and and it's not always hot. I know that. Yeah, the weather forecast is not that great actually for the weekend, but we will talk about that. We will go on to talk about that. Rob, um, 
at the Vuelta, we were asking you and our other guests to present the following day's stage. I would like you, if possible, to present the men's elite road race for us and the course in particular. Well, it starts just north in a place called Hensborough. Um, then there's a ride for around 25Ks down to, to Wollongong. Um, we've got the one large loop. We often have different loops, don't we, in, in worlds. 34-kilometer loop of uh, a climb called Mount Kira. That's just on the edge of what they call the Illawarra Escarpment, sort of rainforest and lakes that, that lie behind uh, Wollongong. Then they come back to town and there's plenty of circuits around what they call Mount Pleasant. Two climbs. First, you've got Mount Osley and then Mount Pleasant. Um, we're talking 266.9 kilometres total. Now, elevation, the official literature is telling us 3,945, but I gather that on VeloView, which I think I'm inclined to trust a little bit more as well as you guys are, you're talking about 4,200, Daniel, is that right? Yeah, I, I had 4,200 and I quoted a couple of other races in the last part um liege was 4333 this year amstel 3573 san sebastian for example 3941 lombardy 4400 last year last year's worlds this surprised me last year's worlds was only 2414 yeah shorter climbs more climbs but shorter climbs yeah i mean i guess what we are looking at though chaps is a very hilly very long one day race would you say larry we should and we should be considering favorites in that light the same sort of guys we would be tipping for races like liege and lombardy yeah to me it's uh, maybe less like lombardy but more like amstel gold you know um just like a bunch of short climbs okay that that like climb at the start looks like it's decently long but uh after that uh you know okay maybe it's like 8k or something but after that it's just like Every single lap, you know, you have a climb that's going to be like two to three minutes long. And, you know, after 200 kilometers, you still have four more times up that climb. So, you know, if guys are hitting it there, uh, that's going to really explode some legs. Larry, I also noticed 30 something. I've seen people say 50 something, but I can only count 30 something corners per 18 kilometer you know it's it's funny you say that because when i looked i was like wow this looks kind of like a criterium um Mm. you know just like it looks like a downtown circuit race uh yeah like a criterium with a climb in it kind of just because there are so many corners um so yeah i think that'll make for interesting racing and and it'll be interesting because like the last time up the climb uh, i think the top's around seven and a half k to go and you know the bottom of the climb six k to go. So with all the corners and stuff, you know I think it might favor a a solo attacker or you know a really small group. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. When I look at those corners, Larry, and when I think about what I've heard and read before about the number of sprints cyclocross riders do per race and per training session. Um, I have to think that Mathieu van der Poel has a great chance, um, as well as Wout van Aert, of course, who I think, I'm right in saying, is most bookmakers' favourite. What do you chaps think? Yeah, I definitely think uh, van der Poel has a good shot. You know, I think it looks like a really... I mean, he can win anywhere, you know, but uh, I think it's even particularly suited to him. So, uh, yeah, you know, I I could see like a small... like a sprint out of a small group at the end, and uh, there's not many people better in a sprint of a small group than he is. 
He's got a really good team to back him up as well. I'm looking now. You've got the likes yeah. of Dylan Fabala. Walt Pools is going down there to ride, and obviously he'll be controlling things on that climb. There's Balcon Mollema, who's on the time trial. Jan Maas, who's not a climber who's sort of everybody knows, but he's just renewed with, with bike exchange. He's a solid enough domestic. Uh, Tackle von Horn as well. But Belgium... And Walt Fanart have also got a pretty strong team as well. And one of the domestics of the year in Nata Verhoydunk, I would say, who's been absolutely mm. exceptional. You mentioned Starvan earlier on. There's Peter Seri, who we know can ride all day long. But there's also the Remco issue. Does he does he play ball? Does he go all the way behind Walt Fanart? Or, or or is he another card to play? Well, it's the big I think issue. They have to we... use him as a card to play, but yeah, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> well, then there was the big issue as we discussed in the Vuelta España of Wout not responding to Remco's texts during the Tour de France. Um, <laughs> possibly, allegedly, as discussed, not even blue ticking him. Um, so they've got to resolve that one. But but how, chaps? How are they going to ride? How are they going to ride? Because obviously they were stung last year, and they were stung by the fallout as well. As you remember, you know Remco. I, I forget how many kilometers he was off the front on his own, but you know it sort of worked. It sort of did depending on who you listen to what, what are they going to do well to me Wout uh, Wout has to wait and uh, Evnipol has to go early you know I think that's the so best same tactic. as last year yeah yeah but maybe like a little later than he went last year you know like <laughs> you know maybe wait to like the last part of the race and uh, and then Wout can just follow I mean, the climb's a serious launch pad. The, the second climb, the second part of the climb, Mount Pleasant, we're talking gradients well into double digits. The hard part is a kilometre long. There's a, what, three, 400 metre average section of about 12, 13% in the first half of it. So if you've got the legs, it's a good launch pad. But I'm going to throw, as well as Belgium and Netherlands, I think we should be thinking about Australia as well, the home team. Yes, I know that Caleb Ewan's not going, but I think part of the good reason that Caleb Ewan isn't going is because Michael Matthews seems in such fantastic form. He was brilliant in, in both of the races in Canada. Um, and one of the... One other rider who's one of the star riders in the world at the minute, Biniam Germay, also seems yeah. to have quite a decent team to look after him as well. He's got experienced domestiques from the world to guys who've been around a long time, like Mohadoui Kudus and Emmanuel Gebrek Zabier, and a couple of young talents, um, Henok Mulbran. Uh, I think he's on uh, Bardiani at the moment as well, Tesfatsion, who we've seen on Androni. Um, don't, don't forget about Biniam Germay. I think uh, they have a, a very, very serious team around there. And one more name, if I can throw it out there, I don't, at the risk of going through the entire start list. Um, Ethan Haight has been going well, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's got a great chance. But, I mean, chaps, are we at the outer limit? I mean, I mean, keep coming back to this altitude gain. Are we at the outer limits of all of those mm. aforementioned riders' capabilities? Sort of well, 4, they've got to have good meters. days, haven't they? They have to have good days. Uh, otherwise, yeah. you're looking at a harder race producing the likes of the Pogacas getting involved and things like that. I mean, yeah, the other thing is, is like there is a long time between each climb, right? So it's like uh, yeah, you is do this, this climb. Well, uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, between each circuit, I, I see what you mean. But I, uh, the thing that catches my eye is that these two climbs are very close. The, 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 um, Rob, you remind me of the names of the two climbs. The Mount Pleasant is the second one. The first one is... Yeah, is it Mount Ausley? I'm, I'm trying to zoom in. Yes, you're right, I think. Well, there, there's that one, Larry, and then you come straight down and it's only 200 metres before the Mount Pleasant starts. And then... Okay, but but this, this, this first climb you're talking about is like a bump. That's the only thing that... I, I don't even know if I'd consider it as much a climb, you know? I'd kind of consider it as like one climb, the two together, you know? 
in two parts. Just, just yeah. because they come, they come yeah. so quickly. It's yeah, so the first yeah. one is five hundred meters long, yeah. uh, and then the second one's a k long. I mean, so you know, it's like I would see it almost more as like a two k climb every lap, mm-hmm. um, just because like they come in such close succession. But then the thing is, is you have like you know ten or twelve k you know, a flat in between each time you hit that sort of 2K climb. So, you know, by the end of the race, yeah, maybe it'll like break up. But I think earlier on, I don't know how much like um, movement we're going to see on that climb every lap because like, you know, if you lose 30 seconds on the climb, which is an enormous amount on a 2K climb. So say you lose 20 seconds, uh, 20 seconds in 12K of flat is not a long time to bring back. So you know, a team like maybe Norway, if they're riding for Kristoff, if they are just smart and stick together, they're always going to come back. So it's really, I think like we are going to see much differences, like uh, many differences being made until like the final of the race when guys really start to lose their teammates and things like that. I find it really difficult now with these smaller teams. Um, of course, in the world, you used to have teams as big as 12. I think perhaps the Italians at Zolder, they had half the peloton in 2002. But it's hard to control the peloton these races. As we saw last year in Belgium, you get certain countries trying to be quite innovative. Um, the French under Thomas Vauclair have generally been quite proactive, quite innovative with Cosnefroy last year. They sort of opened the hostilities with about 90 kilometers to go. So I'm curious to see what they will do. But you're always used to be able to look forward and to sort of visualize a world championship road race. And you would have a very clear image in your mind's eye of, I don't know, a big blob of Italian jerseys on the front or whatever nation had the favorite. I find it harder now to, well, to imagine that kind of scenario. We mentioned the Dutch. They could consider themselves favorites with Van der Poel. The Belgians certainly will. There are others as well. But you know who's going to win, chaps, I think. And it's going to be... El día menos pensado. It's going to be the least expected day. Marc Soler. It's going no. to be Marc Soler. Because no one, no one could threaten Marc Soler's seniority in this Spanish team. Um, it's a very inexperienced team for reasons we've discussed. So there'll be no need to tear out any earpieces. He can do exactly what he wants. And when Marc Soler can do what he wants, wow, wow. I have better. to say, here in Spain, there's, there's a distinct lack of enthusiasm for the Spanish squad that's been sent and the World Championships in general, unfortunately. Just c- coming back, and I'm going to keep coming back to this idea that the, a lot of the favourites, they are going to struggle if it's an attritional race because there is there is a lot of climbing and there are a lot of accelerations. So it could be it could be a race a bit like the one, you know, a few years ago, Innsbruck, where, you know, it ends up with people finishing ones and twos. In that light... Does Tadej Pogacar, and in light particularly of what we saw in Montreal, where he really, okay, it was a sprint against Wout van Aert, but it was a, it was a half-extinguished Wout van Aert who sprinted. Um, could we see a similar scenario play out on Sunday? Hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think part of what I what I, I find exciting about Sunday is that like we actually don't know. You know, it's like it could totally go one way or the other, and you can see that based on the start list of the teams. You know, they send almost like some GC style riders, and they send some sprinters. So it's like, you know, to me, I think it's going to be an exciting race because like it's really hard to predict, um, and I find that kind of cool because like. You know, if it's kind of like a foregone conclusion that it's going to be like a race between Evnipol and Pogacar, that's not that exciting. So because of the course, I think it's a pretty open race and I, I think that'll be exciting. 
I think um, the difference with the race that that Bogacha won in in Montreal and and here, obviously, is that he had a whole UAE team Emirates team to make it a really really hard race in the last few laps, and they did really take it up early. They softened the legs of the likes of Fanart and company, dropped a lot of the other contenders as well. Slovenia have a strong team here, but not the strongest. I'm looking at the likes of not the Tratnik's, biggest either. Not the biggest, no. So I mean, I just wonder how they're going to make the race hard enough to put the the founder pools and fanarts of this world in trouble, or maybe if they're going to have to talk to another team who've got a a similar sort of contender and, and share the workout again. There's no there's no shortage of quality there with Tratnik and Novak, who are brilliant domestiques, as Jan Polance as well, winner of two Giro d'Italia stages in the mountains. Um, as you said, just don't really have big numbers. They've got six riders, so that's five domestiques for Pogacar. I'm going to throw you another couple of curveballs um, just as we as we move towards the conclusion of tonight's episode. Um, Jonathan Narvaez of Ecuador. I think he's going to be riding on his own, but I think All he's got a chance. Own, yeah. um, Rob, someone that you should know or you should have observed at close quarters recently, Valentin Madouas of mm. France, because he just won the Tour of Luxembourg, did he not? And you were commentating on that. He um, he won two stages. Uh, sorry, he ended up stages. on the GC podium. But, um, yeah, and a guy, a guy who can do, well, he can do all sorts, can't he? He can win in a multitude of different ways. Um, and the other one, Alexander Camp, um, the Danish rider, very mercurial rider, very up and down, <laughs> but... Um, he's a rider I've got a lot of time for, not least because he's quite an entertaining, charismatic chap. Um, well, in that very Tour of Luxembourg, in the Danish team as well, you have uh, Matthias Skelmoser, who won the GC. Yeah. And, and in that in that sort of, you know, climber who can get away and keep an effort going or time trial away, he won his first professional race the other day in the time mm. trial and won the GC. So he's a guy to look out for. And while you're on the subject of throwing a name in, I know we could be here all day doing this, but somebody jumps out at me straight away. In that Italian team, what about someone like Andrea Baggioli? Because he obviously goes very well. And I think that in quick step, they rate him really highly. See, my left field was going to be more a sprinter. I was thinking someone like Juan Sebastian Milano. Like if I was just going to, oh, you know, that would be entertaining. If, if I was going <laughs> to bet money or something and I wanted to go for some outside bet, that's who I think I'd put money on. Just because like I doubt he has super high odds or anything like that. And so, uh, I don't know, just as an interesting left field pick. But And he's he's kind of the Mark Soler of lead out men. I mean, it was so, yeah, in, true, character, true. so in character that he won the Madrid sprint in the world to when he was trying to lead out <laughs> Pascal Ackerman. Yeah. Um, yeah, very much, very much in keeping with what I've seen of Sebas uh, Molano over the last couple of years. Finally, chaps, um, Rob Hatch, this is for you, really. I'm going to give you an omen. You mentioned Michael Matthews. Um, no rider from a home nation has won world championships since 2008. Alessandro Balan won in Varese. But what's Michael Matthews' nickname? It's Bling. Wollongong is the hometown of a very famous sportsman whose nickname was yes. Bing or Binger. Brett Lee and the fast bowler. Larry, this will mean absolutely nothing to you. Do you know what it was called, Binger? I don't know. He actually paroled just down the road from me as well. I should know that. It was was after an electrical goods store called Bing Lee, um, which, well, that was where everyone bought their electrical goods in Wollongong, New South Wales. Consequently, Brett Lee became Binger. um, Um, He's he's also a a Bollywood superstar, isn't he? Brett Lee, is he? Oh God, yes, this is, I, this think is a, I think he did. I think he did a big Bollywood now. song. I oh, will wow. leave it there. If you, if you want to look it up, type in Brett Lee Bollywood. There you go. 
Well, chaps, I think that concludes the entertainment for today. Or does it? No, this isn't a cue for a return of the most popular feature of the Vuelta coverage, Wistful Gazing with Fran Reyes. But I think that in the spirit of something else that went down pretty well at the Vuelta, or Ritmo de la Vuelta, Rhythm of the Vuelta, featuring the official anthems of the race since 1978, we would remind ourselves of a time when the World Championships also had an official song. And wow, what a song it was. You're going to hear it in a second. First, I'm going to say goodbye and thanks to you, Rob Hans. Thank you very much. I'm going to say goodbye and thanks to you, Larry Warbass. Thank you. And then I'm going to let a gentleman called Memo Remigi serenade us with his hymn to the 2008 World Championships in Varese, Italy. Varese va. Concentrate tutte in un fazzoletto e solo un giro in bici basterà. Varese va, Varese va, Varese va. Con il tuo cielo di un'azzurra immensità, città mondiale del ciclismo, tu sei già. Varese va, Varese va. Cielo di un'azzurra immensità, città mondiale del ciclismo, tu sei già. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.